Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. You kind of quickly run into problems if you're just doing things on a yellow pad or whiteboards, which is what people were doing back then. Taking time to step back, assess your surroundings, and evaluate the climate is essential when you're trying to break new ground in business. Paying close attention can lead to ideas that make a seismic shift in an industry. We built our own proprietary system. So it was kind of the confluence of cloud and mobile computing along with the great financial crisis that created this birth of the industry. And it's turned into an asset class that is now real. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. The most innovative business concepts are usually born from industry stress. Today's guest created a groundbreaking platform in response to the economic pressure cooker of the 2000s. On this episode, we're sitting down with Gary Beasley, who is a co-founder and CEO of Roofstock, an award-winning real estate investment as a service platform for the $4 trillion single-family rental sector. The company is backed by a blue-chip roster of investors, including Kosla Ventures, Lightspeed Venture Partners, Bain Capital Ventures, and SoftBank. Roofstock has completed over $6 billion worth of transactions since its founding in 2015. Previously, Gary was the co-CEO of publicly traded Starwood Waypoint Residential Trust, now part of Invitation Homes, and is known as a pioneer in the development of the single-family rental sector as an institutional asset class. Gary also served as CEO of a boutique hotel company called Schwab de Vive Hospitality, an award-winning solar technology startup, GreenVolts. Between 2001 and 2007, Gary was the CFO of Zip Realty, where he led the internet-based residential brokerage through its IPO before eventually being named its president. Gary also spent six years with KSL Resorts, where he was instrumental in acquiring and integrating over 800 million worth of resort properties. Gary earned a BA in economics from Northwestern University and an MBA from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, where he serves as a regular guest lecturer. Let's enter the arena with Gary Beasley. Well, I grew up in a small town in Northwest Indiana, which was, I guess, only about 90 minutes from Northwestern, but it was a world away. Small town, 25,000 people, 2,800 kid high school, public, 25% went to college. What I found was education was my way out. You know, a lot of my friends stayed there and I'm still close to them, but that was not what I wanted. I wanted to explore other parts of the country and the world. And, and I got a little taste of that at, at Northwestern. 
What do you think gave you that perspective? Like, it, was it something your parents talked about, or just did you have just a natural curiosity that you think other people didn't have? Or you know, my brother, two years older, sort of preceded me. He was he was the first kid in my high school ever to go to an Ivy League college, and out of the, out of that many kids, no kidding, wow, yeah. So he, you know, I I, I could say he kind of paved the way for me and, and showed me the art of the possible to sort of look beyond what was right in front of me. Very cool. Well, you get out of Northwestern and, and you had a BA in economics, which I had a BA in economics. And when I got out of college, I had no idea what I was doing at all. <laughs> what was your first job and how did that pan out for you? Wow. My first job turned out to be a, a disaster, really, Tom. I, I, <laughs> I was recruited heavily, which should have told me something. They really wanted me to come. They, they recruited six kids from Northwestern out of a class of 20, moved us all to Newport Beach, and it was a computer leasing firm. And I thought it was interesting combination of finance and sales, a chance to get some experience in this new industry. And it turned out that they were highly unethical. It was wow. a, the, the first two months was training. And a lot of the training was trying to figure out how to pull the wool over the eyes of the customers. So I quit after a few months, moved back to Evanston and got a job with LaSalle Partners, which is now part of JLL, which is the opposite end of the spectrum highly ethical. I really learned you, you have sometimes when things seem too good to be true, they are. I was really too young and inexperienced to know how to diligence a company, but it was a, a good life experience. And it, it um, really helped ground me in what, what was important in organizations. I know you decided to go back to business school and you were telling me you had got into some really good programs, but not presumably your first choice, which was Stanford. You waited and reapplied to Stanford. What went into that decision and why were you so set on going there? I really liked what I knew about Stanford, its approach. It, it was entrepreneurial, didn't have grades back at the time. We, it had grades, but it was <laughs> secret um, because they wanted you to take academic risks and it was in California. And so I did not get in. You're right. The first time I applied, the guy who ran my group at LaSalle Partners was terrific. He went to Stanford. I really admired him. He reached out to the admissions director re repeatedly and finally got some feedback on my application, which he relayed to me. He said, hey, Gary, I think what you need to do if you want to go to Stanford, reapply next year. I'll give you two projects to run because they said you need a little bit more experience leading. So I did those things and I reapplied and I got in. And so, you know, it was one of those things where it also was a formative experience for me where I saw the time that Wade, who's the gentleman, took to do that changed my life. So I try to take that to heart when I think that there are times I could help people who might be in a similar spot. I know when you got out of business school, you took a little bit different path with your first job. What, what did you do right out of business school? I took a job basically carrying the briefcase of this guy, Bill Sanders, who's sort of the father of REITs. He had founded LaSalle Partners back in the day and then retired, quasi-retired, moved to New Mexico and started a private equity firm called Security Capital Real Estate Private Equity. I had him come speak at Stanford. We really you know, hit it off. He took me out to dinner and said, hey, why don't you come work for me? I'm thinking about hiring a bunch of MBAs and really getting the pro starting a program where we would hire 18 or 20 MBAs and, and embed them in the businesses. But it was a wealth of experience. And I, I got to spend time traveling with him, sitting in board meetings, getting inside his head. And it was, it was another, it was an extension of my MBA. 
And so I, 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 it's one of the things I do tell people is especially early on, unless you want to take a very traditional path of doing investment banking or management consulting, which some people do, or private equity, don't do it for the money. Uh, do, do some early, experience, early jobs for the experiences. I feel like I got you know, four or five years of experience in my first year um, doing, doing that job. And then over time, listen, careers are long. And er, er, what you want to do, I think, early is build those skills and, and relationships that will help propel you later. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. You know, your ability to be with him and kind of go into those meetings. And there's so many people who are smart, right? Every, everybody coming out of Stanford is smart. How you get those intangible skills, how to treat people, how to handle yourself in a meeting, how to deal with people with big egos and a lot of money is just like super important, right? So during the financial crisis of 2008, you and your partners built Waypoint Homes, really the first platform to own and operate lots of homes, I think a thousand homes, a milestone that you all reached in 2012. Institutions now own many multiples of that, but talk through how that sector kind of became institutionalized so quickly and where do you see it from here? It's fascinating how, how it all transpired. So it took us, my partners and I, probably three years, friends and family money and you know, small funds to, to get to a thousand homes. We, we finally raised some institutional capital um, in December of 2011. But we were, as you point out, the first platform to get to a thousand homes by the end, and that was January of 2012, by the end of that quarter, Invitation Homes, which is, you know, was the Blackstone sponsored vehicle, were buying a thousand homes a week. And that that's when you saw the, the Housing market bottom. It had been going yeah. down for five years, if you recall. Yep. You go to Q1 of 2012. From then, it started growing, and capital started flowing in. And it was a kind of a perfect storm where there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of homes that needed renovation and capital because there, there's this horrible foreclosure crisis and no one could buy homes. And so we needed quality, affordable rentals. And so that's what started. Is the it was the 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 great entry point we were buying homes that were four hundred thousand at the peak for one hundred and twenty thousand, and renting them out for a ten percent net yield, all you know in the Bay Area in the Far East Bay. So our only mistake that we made is we didn't buy enough homes. How do you even set up a a process or a system to buy that many homes every month? Well, you needed technology. You kind of quickly run into problems if you're just doing things on a yellow pad or whiteboards, which is what people were doing back then. So we built some software. We built a whole system for evaluating the homes, doing all the underwriting, managing the renovations, doing all the leasing and property management. We built our own proprietary system. So it was kind of the confluence of cloud and mobile computing along with the great financial crisis that created this birth of the industry. And then it became, listen, capital's no fool. You know, you weren't going to get 10% yields forever. So capital just flowed in and it's turned into an asset class that is now real. It's now a sector that is, that is tracked by Green Street and others. And I think it's trading most recently at the sort of the second lowest cap rate, implied cap rate of any asset class right behind industrial. So, um, you go from sort of the doghouse to the penthouse pretty quickly. And I, I think that's 
it's a testament to a, an industry or an asset class that has some really interesting characteristics, right? You have some yield. It's the only real estate that I know that has two exits where you could sell it to a yield investor or sell it to a homeowner who might be the low cap rate buyer who's more of an emotional buyer. And so there's this embedded option that I don't think is often priced in. And I, I like to describe it, Tom, as sort of a, it's like an inflation index bond with an equity kicker. So you get your current yield and you adjust it every year, keep up with inflation or, or a little bit better, and you've got levered exposure to home price appreciation. So you can generate really nice returns. So um, we're now at about probably 400,000 or so homes that are owned by the big institutions, which sounds like a lot, but there's 100 million homes in the country and, yeah. and there's 20 million rental homes. So you're still only 2% of the rental homes being owned by the large institutions. And when you look at multifamily, I've seen various numbers, but you know, 40, 50, 60% are owned by institutional investors. So there's a lot of room, I think, for that 2% to grow over time. And there's a lot of interest from capital to um, provide that housing. And, and I think acceptance of, of renting for large, larger segments of the population who like the flexibility of renting, like the the fact things get fixed when they're broken, you can move around, you can move to new markets for opportunities, and you can build equity in other ways. It's not all about, listen, I'm all for home ownership, but it's not for everybody all the time. Well, you framed it out brilliantly, kind of the whole asset class and, and where it's going, which is a great segue to Roofstock and its founding. Tell us about what you and your partner saw in the marketplace to really go for it and say, we're going to do this. And, and what is it? Tell us about it. It was obvious to us that it was a good trade, early buying homes that we're going to appreciate again. And there was the option of maybe we could build a platform. And there was upside there. And even if the platform didn't come together, we knew we were buying a bunch of cheap homes and we could sell them. So that was kind of an, like a, a, a low risk way to kind of start a business that had optionality to it, it, it and, and it worked. And so we were able to take the platform, we merged it with Starwood Capital because what happened was at the time, Barry Sternlich had about a billion dollars of homes and non-performing loans in his mortgage REIT, which was publicly traded. And his thought was it would make more sense to have those assets in a separate vehicle we had an operating company and we could be the management team to do that. So we spun off those assets and took that public. That was in 20, 2014. And then, so we had a billion dollars of assets, no debt, and we levered it up and continued to build, build that platform. Early vision for Roofstock was that it could have a positive impact on the U.S. real estate market's foreclosure crisis. I asked Gary about Roofstock's business model and how it has adapted to social and economic change over the years. Back in 2015, I left Starwood Waypoint to start Roofstock with the idea of really building the ecosystem for single family rentals. And so the idea was if we could provide a place for investors to buy, sell, and own single family rentals using our infrastructure. So the way I like to describe it is we're kind of like the real estate investment cloud. So you could plug into Roofstock kind of like you plug in Salesforce, right? If you have a strategy and you have capital, you come in and you can rent our platform. We have a lot of data and technology. We eliminate a lot of friction. 
We have services and people in place to execute trades to help you buy, optimize, or sell single-family rentals. And so that was the very simple thesis. We bring buyers and sellers together. We create liquidity. We have our own management platform. We're kind of the go-to one-stop shop, if you will, for the sector. And um, it just helps to have all the relationships that my co-founders and I had in the single-family rental space. Then it just we've just sort of built it from there. And I would say our business has expanded from initially really being just a marketplace that was monetizing transactions, selling homes with tenants in place. The initial concept was, why should you have to vacate a home to sell it? Yeah, You, you should sell it with a tenant in place. So we certified the home, local property manager, and the tenant, and we're able to sell the home with a tenant in place. So that had its limitations because we lost connectivity to the buyer once the transaction was done. And so we really wanted to build a full stack platform, which we have done which allows us to stay connected and provide services throughout the life cycle from the buy through through the sell. And then importantly, we get all that data that helps us with our, our underwriting, our, our AVMs and all, all of the all the tools that help make us you know, smart in the investment space. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. This is both a retail and institutional effort, right? So I could go on if I say, hey, you know, I want to buy a rental property in Florida or something like that, but also big institutions can also play on the platform, which is key. I would imagine this is like perfect for family offices. It's great for family offices. You know, we can we can build portfolios kind of of any size or shape for families or really any kind of investor. Um, but it is it is a, a unique service where you you could have a thesis or come to us and just say, I have capital, help me come up with some ideas. So I know when you started this, I'm sure you had the concern with agents and brokers and all of that, and you kind of pivoted to uh, kind of make them your distribution partners in a way, and I'm sure that you had to give up some economics to do that, probably happily so. How, how has that decision helped the momentum of the business over time? Yeah, I think there's different ways to be disruptive. You know, at Zip Realty, where we were disrupting the traditional brokerage space by offering lower commissions and and rebates to buyers and putting complete MLS online and it created a lot of noise back then. It's hard to imagine, but back in the early 2000s, complete MLS was not allowed to be online and they'd been fighting kind of ever I since. I remember that. But I got an appreciation for how hard it is to sort of fight the Fed, if you will. There's all this momentum. And so he said, okay, with Roofstock, why don't we make agents and brokers our friends and make them distribution partners? We, we could try to just eliminate them and make all the trades through our own proprietary marketplace. Or we could say we could also invite agents, brokers to bring clients, which they do, or to bring us inventory, which they do. And that has worked quite well. So you could come and register your clients if you're an agent, and anything that people would buy, you could get a referral fee on. When if you're an agent in a particular market, let's say you're in Chicago, you're not going to sell properties in Florida or Arizona or Georgia, likely to your, your client you sold a house to, but that, that client may trust you and you might be able to, to help them get exposure. So yeah, we've chosen to make them more allies and, and it's worked well. Yeah. The other thing I think that's really cool about the platform is, and I'm looking kind of at it through an individual's lens right now, if I have a couple of rental properties, I've got like my yellow pad and 
doing all the numbers and maybe have a spreadsheet. You have the tools so that I can look at it as part of a comprehensive portfolio. I think that's really like another thing that's just so valuable about the platform. It's Stessa, which is assets spelled backwards. Oh, okay. <laughs> now I see it. <laughs> Tell me about that because I, honestly, like that when I'm, I've got like my whole stock portfolio over here to the right, and then I have like my little spreadsheet over here, and it's not integrated. Th that's like such a cool thing that you're doing. It's a free asset management tool. It's a little bit like Credit Karma for real estate because it's free. We you use it as your system of record for all of your homes. You get your P and L, all your tax informations there, etc. You could do what if scenarios. We we can give you discounts to things like insurance or better financing deals, and we could push that stuff to you. And we we get the data. And so we could help benchmark performance because if you're an individual owner, it's kind of hard to know if you're doing well or not. If you want to change property managers, who should you go to? So we kind of, we have probably, I don't know, $120 billion of assets using the Stessa software right now, and it's growing rapidly. And it's a free tool. We also have a paid version, which we launched last year, which has some additional functionality for some people who have multiple assets and want, want other tools, but otherwise it's free. Really cool. I did mention COVID before, but um, take me through like the COVID journey for you. Like, what what was that like? Kind of emotionally, like a roller coaster, right? It was crazy. So we we scaled back the business dramatically, and for about six months, nothing happened. Right. So no no trades, and then what you started to see was that later that year, you started to see some trades start to happen because people were discovering that they could move other places. Like Park and, City blew up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Boise, Idaho, all, all these places. And this idea of working from, from anywhere started to emerge. And then the, the, there was this overwhelming demand in a lot of these secondary and tertiary cities. And people had a lot of time on their hands. So they could be, instead of being in the office, they were, they were online shopping for houses in some of these places and buying them and renting them out uh, through us. And, and then the institutional, there was a bid-ask spread of about 10 or 15% that emerged right in COVID. And then eventually buyers blinked. Sellers kind of held on through it. Buyers blinked. And then they were off to the races. And so 2021 was an incredible year. And I think the, the back half of 2021, we were buying on the order of about $250 million a month of homes for investors, wow. just on the buy side. So it was really just unprecedented demand, and the homes all leased quickly, and you know it was just everything was really blowing and going, and obviously had a very accommodating Fed at that time. And so the, the, the numbers were extremely, extremely well. Yeah. Well, now we find ourselves in this kind of like, uh, quote unquote, higher for longer environment in terms of rates. I could see that um, being a blessing, maybe a little bit of a curse. What's your take on that, Gary? Yeah, I, th I think it's both. It depends on your time horizon and, and how addicted you are to low cost leverage. And so what we're finding is people who we're, we're borrowing sub 3% and doing securitizations at 90% of value. <laughs> Don't like 6% interest rates. If you're an insurance company and you're new to the game and you hadn't done it before and you don't need a lot of leverage or any leverage and you're looking to keep pace with inflation and it looks really interesting. Or individuals 
who um, want an inflation hedge because clearly real estate is an asset that that is an excellent inflation hedge. And so what I'm seeing is investors who are buying today have take a little bit of a longer term view. It's a much less competitive environment. We used to you know, get 15, 20 offers on every home that we were buying. Now we're like the only offer oftentimes when we're buying homes. Now there's very little supply, so prices haven't really corrected. And that's a whole nother conversation as to why that is the case, but it, it is the case. So yeah, there's still activity, fewer transactions happening, and it's typically a little bit different capital that it, that is active. Yeah, makes sense. Specific to the business, I know you closed the last round of financing in February of last year. Great timing. Raised $230 million from SoftBank, which is just another uh, great name in your cap table. H- how's your runway in terms of raising capital now? And how did you put together such a great cap table? I know you've been around the business for a really long time have a lot of credibility uh, and trust in what you're doing. But even with your credentials and your senior team, that's a pretty impressive uh, group of backers. We feel really fortunate. I have to say SoftBank's been a been a fantastic partner. They've been nothing but terrific with us. I mean, they obviously came in at the top of the cycle, but they've been there for us, and as have our other investors. I think we've just been fortunate. We started off with Coastal Ventures, who's a, a great initial sponsor, and from there, we brought in Bain and, and Lightspeed. And, and I think once you get a few on your cap table, they know a lot of good people and it tends to build as long, but, but you still have to deliver. Got to perform. Yeah. It, gives you, it gives you a chance. Like it gets you at bats. It doesn't mean you're going to get a hit. We have been fortunate in a lot of ways and having some tailwinds in the sector has certainly helped. Having a lot of interest in prop tech has certainly helped. Having been through some cycles too, we've tried to stay ahead of the game in terms of managing burn and things like that. And so we, we're really very well capitalized. We have a lot of that money left and we're, we're treating it like it's gold because it is, right? It's, it's a real, real strategic asset. And you know, having, as you know, been in the public markets, um, when I have a, a company that's got a strong balance sheet and is profitable. You know, it's not all about chasing growth anymore. It's about having a viable business that generates, you know, cash flow and and so want to make sure that we're investing that money wisely. So this platform to me that you've created just seems like it could apply to other private investments where there's a lot of friction. Is that accurate and are you ever tempted to to kind of get out of your swim lane a little bit or is there just too much opportunity where you sit today? Yes and yes. We're, te- we're tempted all the time. It is a huge addressable market that we have just in single-family rentals. There's $4 trillion of single-family rental homes that exist today. And when we think about it, it's much more likely for us to expand to adjacent product types like short-term rentals or small multifamily, kind of sub-50-unit multifamily. Both of those are still underserved by the typical market. You know, institutional multifamily, commercial, industrial, well-served channels. And then we're actually just starting to do some things in the UK, for example. That's a pretty interesting market over there. So I think our model is exportable kind of you know horizontally, if you will, to a couple of these other asset classes and then geographically. How about plans for liquidity for roof stock? I mean, I would normally ask this of people and they'd say, well, we're not going to comment on that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, maybe that's your same answer. And But uh, you know, would you want to be a public CEO again? 
Yes, I mean, I w- under the right circumstances, I certainly would, but but um, it would have to be under the right circumstances. I realize that a, an IPO is not a liquidity event. It's the beginning of a journey for investors and employees to get liquidity. But um, if you want liquidity, sell the company. That's that's what I tell other founders who are thinking about this. But again, it, it, it depends on where we are with the public markets, what our use of capital looks like, uh, how important it is to elevate our brand. There's lots of reasons to go public. Our investors, I think, have some patience, but eventually they're going to want to get a return on their investment. They, the early investors have been in it eight years, you know, since the very we founded in 2015. So we'll see where we are. Um, but but my sense is, given where we are in the cycle, we're at least a couple of years away from thinking about anything like that, and we'll end up doing what's whatever's right for the business. Gary, I wanted to ask you one last question. Everybody's talking about AI and and things like that. There's like what I would call valuation chasers, you know, the public companies who now like everything they say is about AI. What's your take on it in the context of Roofstock and how could it help your business over the next five years, let's say? Well, really, there's a lot of very, very interesting applications for AI in real estate. It's a no-brainer for certain things like customer service, chatbots, things like that. What we're finding is it's routing of, of um, work orders and things like that. Yeah. Um, the, the ability to be able to be super efficient with document review and, and eliminate a lot of that time. A lot of the analytics, we're, we're using AI to help be much more forward-looking in, in some predictive analytics. We're using image recognition to help estimate repairs on homes that just based on pictures and age and things like that. We're getting that more and more dialed in. And then there's a, a whole uh, host of things that blockchain could also help. And so I know a lot of people conflate blockchain and crypto. They're different things. Blockchains and infrastructure. For example, we've tokenized uh, a handful of homes now and sold them as NFTs and several with embedded uh, financing. So think about Instead of buying a house, you're buying an NFT that has a house sitting in it, and it's got a loan against the NFT, and you could buy the token, and then the financing goes with the token. So then you could sell me your token, no friction. And the loan doesn't care who I am as long as I pass the criteria to be a legitimate buyer. So talk about an unlock. And listen, at Roofstock, we've been trying to figure out how to eliminate friction, lower cost, increase liquidity, and, and transparency. And blockchain does, does that. So we're going to continue to invest in that. So more, more to come there. Gary's foresight in real estate had a ripple effect across the housing market and the broader economy, but he's also made an impact with Roofstock's asset tracking software. The company's nose for innovation has been crucial to their influence and stronghold in the industry. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank our guest, Gary Beasley, for joining me on the show today. By designing a first-of-its-kind platform, Roofstock has become a focused company executing at a high level, targeting an asset class that's here to stay. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena.
References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.